Amen. All right. Well, hey, Mercy Fellowship, can we give the band a round of applause for leading us in worship this morning? So appreciate it. Praise God. If you don't know me, my name's Curtis. I'm the associate pastor here at the church. Honored to be preaching to you all this morning. This Sunday, we're beginning a new sermon series in the book of Psalms called Psalms Soundtrack for the Soul. We're going to be in it for about a month, month plus, and we're going to have a bunch of guest preachers that are coming in uh, throughout Washington. And I'll tell you what, church, show up for those Sundays. Uh, When I don't know how you feel, but often I can feel for us as our church, like, oh man, you know, like, it's just us Christians in Washington. There's not a lot of other Christians. And then you get guest preachers in, and you think, oh yeah, like, God's taking care of his church in Washington. There are some absolute beasts when it comes to being preachers in Washington State. And so absolutely want you to show up for those. It's going to be fun having some guest preachers show up. A soundtrack for the soul. We're going to be in Psalm 103 today. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up. If not, it'll be on the screen. And the idea of this sermon series is this. When you watch a movie, there's a soundtrack to that movie. And that soundtrack is meant to bring a color and life to the film. I don't know how many of you guys have seen it, but on YouTube, there will be people that will edit movie clips and they'll remove the music from it. And it's incredibly awkward when you watch the movie without music. When you watch the film, you're like, oh, the, the, the acting's not that good. It's awkward. It's kind of weird when it's missing the soundtrack. When the soundtrack's added to it, oh, it brings life. It brings color. It brings depth. So it is, church, for you and for I. Right, we the soundtrack for the people of God is the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms are meant to give us color as well as life to your Christian experience. And this is incredibly true when it comes to one of the heroes of uh, the faith for me, which is Martin Luther. Martin Luther, if you don't know who he is, he is the founder of the Protestant Reformation. And if you don't know what that means, just for now, just to get you by, it means that we're not Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. That's what it means. But he had a high view of worship. He had a high view of music. So much so, church, that to this day in our worship services, we have a lot of music. There's a reason for that. It's in large part due to Martin Luther. Here's a few things that he said about music. I've got three quotes from him. He says this, Beautiful music is the art of the prophets that can calm the agitations of the soul. It is one of the most magnificent and delightful presents God has given us. Is that your experience with music? You're anxious, you're worried, you're, you're agitated, and then music has a way of just calming you, bringing about peace in your life. This one's my personal favorite. A person who does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God must be a clodhopper. That means a foolish, awkward, clumsy person. He must be a clodhopper. Indeed, and he does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the loud, harsh cries of asses and the grunting of hogs. They just don't make pastors like they used to. That is just so great. Had to throw that quote in there. Last one for you guys, all right? Next to the word of God, he says, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. So music's a gift from God, amen? Music is a gift that God has given to us, his church, and it's a gift to help us not only memorize the truths about who God is, but on top of that, it's meant to stir your affections and your emotions and to woo you towards your bride, our bride in the church, our our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, 
we're going to have some fun with this, seeing how churches have handled music differently throughout uh, probably the last half century, if not most of the century. How many of you, show of hands, grew up in a charismatic church? All right, you can raise two hands if you feel more comfortable doing so. No running up and down the aisle, though, okay? We'll have to kick you out if you do that, all right? Grew up in a charismatic church. Their music, by and large, is high emotion. It's high passion. It's high even application. But when it comes to something like doctrine, which is teaching who God is, often, but not always, often, it's low. High emotion, high passion, low on doctrine. R.C. Sproul, the late great theologian, he talked about songs that Charismatic sings, that they're 7-11 songs. You sing the verse seven times, and you sing the chorus 11 times, right? Very repetitive, and they keep on going on and on and on, and there's tons of passion involved in their songs they sing. And the lyrics are often things like, well, God is great, and God is good. But they never go into depth about, well, why is God great? Or why is God good? High emotion, high application, low on doctrine. If you come here to Mercy Fellowship and you are charismatic, welcome, glad to have you. Want to let you know this. For our church, technically speaking, we are a charismatic church. We believe that the gifts that God gave to the church in the first century, they are still for us to this day. We believe that to be true. The difference between us, though, and a Pentecostal church and other charismatic churches, though, would be this. We're more restricted in what we think actually can happen, right? Uh, I'm not coming to you with a word from the Lord that I heard in my mind. I've got this word from God. I'm going to give that to you. Uh, if you want to hear God speak out loud, read your Bible out loud. That's what I would say to you, okay? God could speak to you, and he can give you impressions in your soul. We believe that. Uh, but we're going to be more restricted than other charismatics or Pentecostals, all right? So offended half of you. Let's offend the rest of you, okay? How many of you guys grew up in more of a traditional church? Baptist, Presbyterian, Anglican, Lutheran, right? Their music, high view of God, high view of doctrine. They hold God really high, but their songs often are sung with no passion, emotionless, joyless, and often at times, if we're honest, seem lifeless, the ditch that these churches often fall into is the ditch of fundamentalism, which means this, they suck the fun out of anything they touch. It's kind of their superpower, if you will. Right? I mean, if there's kids that are running around, it's like, well, we have to stop that. We can't allow kids to run around. Who would dare allow kids to have, run around and have fun? Right? We've got to stop that. Right? At those churches, they take God seriously, but they take themselves even more seriously. Right? For these churches... Their music has a high view of God. And even some of those songs they've created, we sing in our churches to this day. But they're often sung, joyless, passionless, emotionless, and as far as application goes, it lacks application. Well, why do I say all this, Mercy Fellowship? Here's why. When it comes to the Psalms, the Psalms are emotional Psalms. They have emotions in them. Not just emotions of excitement, of passion, of praise, but also of sorrow and lament and anguish and anxiety. They're emotional songs. But on top of that, though, church, they blend perfectly with a high view of doctrine, a high view of God. They have not only passion and emotion, but they also have doctrine and theology as well. I want you to think about it like this, church. Think about a fire, right? When it comes to a fire, a good fire, you need to have not just the fuel, the logs, you need to have the flame. You need to have the fire. So it is with your Christian life. 
for your Christian life, you need to have not just the fuel, the theology, the doctrine, the knowledge. Knowledge in and of itself is a knowledge that puffs up rather than produces love amongst the church. That's what the Apostle Paul would say. So you can't just have fuel. However, a flame, passion, emotion, excitement in and of itself is going to flame out. You need to have the flame. You need to have the passion and the emotion and the excitement. But you also need to uh, supplement that with the fuel of God's word and knowing who God is. And that is going to be the thing, church, that warms your soul towards the person of Jesus Christ. All right? Psalm 103. Long intro. My porch was bigger than the house. I apologize for that. Psalm 103, though, verses 1 through 5. We'll go ahead and dig into it. Breaking it up into three sections. This is section number one, benefits from God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all of your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, and who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The psalmist here, King David, he is telling us to praise the Lord. It says bless, but the way you and I use bless is different than that, right? If I was to give you a gift or you were to give me a gift, I would say, hey, I hope this blesses you. That's not what's being communicated here. Rather, it should be translated praise to the Lord, right? We are bringing praises to God. That's how the psalm starts. But do you notice who David's audience is in this psalm? Who's he addressing? David, he is addressing himself. He is saying, soul, me, praise the Lord. With all that is in me, praise his holy name. He's speaking to himself. He's having, church, an inner dialogue. I did some research this week just getting prepped for this sermon on inner dialogues, and I came across an article from a gal named Kristen Cherney. She has her PhD in this field. And she says, when it comes to inner dialogues, there's roughly two groups of people that have inner dialogues. It's one, those who have a critical inner dialogue, and two, it's those of you in the room who have no inner dialogue. You think people that have inner dialogues are insane, right? Why would you talk to yourself? It doesn't make sense to you. Hopefully, I can show you at the end why I think it's important that we have this. But she goes on to talk about people who have overly critical dialogues, and she says this, one, it's good for you to be critical of yourself from time to time. It's good for you when you mess up to own up to those things that you've messed up to. But when you're overly critical and you do that constantly, 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 when you mess up, you're the first person to tell you that you messed up. And you do that over a span of a couple years, five years, 10 years, a couple decades, right? That's hell on earth. You think about the job of Satan. It says that Satan's job is to accuse the people of God day and night. It falls into that same line of just this overly critical dialogue. Perhaps some of you come in like that. You come in and you have this overly critical dialogue that you're wrestling with in your mind and you can't break the chains of it. What would I suggest? I would say this, church. Take your eyes off of your imperfections and look to Jesus' perfection in your place. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The writer says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Right? An overly critical dialogue. That's a weight, right? That's a weight. 
throw, let us lay aside those weights and sins which cling so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Mercy Fellowship, look at me for a second. I want to tell you this. Take your eyes off yourself. Look to Jesus. Jesus is your perfection, not you. Jesus is your righteousness, not you. Jesus is perfecting you by your faith, right? This is a work that he does, and you get a partner with him in that, but it's not on your shoulders, right? So get rid of that critical dialogue. I don't have the quote with me, but Martin Luther, he went ahead and said, hey, when Satan accuses you and tells you that you deserve, uh, you deserve hell, tell him, yeah, I know I do, but what of it? My Lord Jesus Christ has paid for everything. He is my perfection, and in him I place my trust. Church, this overly critical dialogue, take your eyes off of yourself and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. So some of you have an overly critical dialogue. Some of you, though, have no inner dialogue. And my challenge to you would be this. Don't let it be the responsibility of someone else to summon you and call you to worship Jesus. You take responsibility for that. You take action for that. Speak to yourself and say, soul, with all that I am and all that I have, worship God. Don't let it be my responsibility. Don't let it be someone else's responsibility. Let it be your responsibility. Now, why do we do this, Mercy Fellowship? We do this, and we call ourselves, we, we summon ourselves to worship God, because if we don't, we are going to forget what God has done for us. This is the definition of idolatry. Idolatry is when you worship something or someone other than God. And what is, how does that happen? Well, that happens because you forgot who God is. You forgot what he's done for you. I remember uh, about 10, 11 years ago, I went to Guatemala for a short-term mission trip, and it was a lot of fun. and got to go ahead and see what the missionaries were doing over there. And one of the towns that we stayed at, in the, the center of Guatemala, uh, we went ahead and we looked around the, the town, and they took us to the Catholic Church. Catholic churches always have beautiful buildings, right? Architecture is beautiful. So we ended up going there. And you walk in the church, and you walk in. There's a bunch of candles that are lit. And the candles that are lit, so there's a bunch of white ones. And the white candles that are lit, they're lit as prayers to God that God would heal people or that God would answer your prayer or that he'd care for you. But there's also a bunch of black candles as well. And the black candles were people that have, are praying to God that God would curse other people within the town. Right? This is a town is going through a lot of things, right? They got something going on. We'll just go ahead and leave that. But you get to the back side of this church and there's an amphitheater and in the middle of the stage there's an erected cross. It stands about 10, 12 feet high. And at the base of this cross, church, and I'm not even joking, at the base of this cross of where our Lord Jesus died, mind you, at the base of the cross of where Jesus says, it is finished, I've paid it all. At the base of this cross, there's a burn pile where they're sacrificing animals to their local pagan gods so that they'd have a good crop that season. How does that happen? That happens, church, because they forgot who Jesus was and what he had done for them. He forgot what they had done. This idolatry, right? So what has God done for us, Mercy Fellowship? Well, he's done so much for us. We already read it. Let's go ahead and read it again, though. It says this, He forgives you of all of your iniquity, 
He heals you of all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. And he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like that of the eagles. First one, he forgives all of your iniquity. This is huge, Mercy Fellowship. When we talk about iniquity, that word just simply, it's another way of translating sin. It has a different angle to it, but it ultimately just means sin. And when we talk about you being forgiven of your sin, that's something, especially if you've grown up in church, that can go in one ear and out the other, right? But I want you to sit in this reality. You've been forgiven of your sin. The sin that separates you from a holy God. The sin that brings about suffering and ruin within this world. That sin, church, God has taken from us. He forgives us of this. The author of this psalm, David, he knew this so well. David, he was an adulterer. David, he was a murderer. He was a liar. And yet he had placed his faith in a God who could forgive him of all his iniquity. Uh, Perhaps you come in this morning like this. You think, man, my sins are too big. There's no way God could forgive me. My sins, they're, they're too many. They're too regular. There's no way that God can continually forgive me of those sins. Psalm 130, we read it for our call to worship. This is exactly what that psalmist struggles with. He says, God, if you were to judge me based upon my iniquities, who could stand against you? But then he goes on to say, but with you there is forgiveness. Mercy Fellowship, we worship a God who is a forgiver of sins. Amen? We worship a God who is a forgiver of sins, which means this. This morning, whatever mess you might bring, you can have confidence this morning that if you are repentant in heart, desiring to change, that God, in fact, will answer and honor that prayer and change you and forgive you of all of your sins. And so God is good to us in that he forgives. But God is is not simply just going to forgive us and leave us to ourselves, right? God is not simply a judge who just pardons you and then walks away. No, rather, God is a father who pursues you and loves you and pours out his gifts to you. And so it continues on. Not only does he forgive you of your iniquity, but this next one, he heals you of all your diseases. You might read this church as I did and say, okay, well, maybe it's talking about physical healing, right? And I don't reject that at first glance, right? God can and does heal. Perhaps there's even some of you in this room, you've been suffering, you've struggled at times, and you've prayed that God would heal you, and he has. Praise be to God for that. We continue as a church for people who are suffering within our church community and people we know, we pray that God would heal them. And then we leave it up to God, right? I don't have the magic power, you don't have the magic power, it is God who holds the power in that situation. We believe that God can and does heal. But if that's all that God does, church, then that's too restrictive on God. That's too restrictive. Because we believe this, that you, yes, you should have a physician for your physical health, but more than that, what you need is a great physician who makes dead people alive, who can awaken your soul to the reality of who God is and what he's done for you. This is what we need. So yeah, God can heal the body. He will one day heal the body entirely. But what I love about this section where it says he heals us of all of our diseases is this. It's communicating to you and to me that God can break the power of sin over your life today. That's great news. 
it's great news because if you've lived long enough in this Christian experience, this life, you know that there are some sins that just keep on creeping up in your life. They keep on returning. It's like you go and you weed the garden, and you're like, great, never going to have to deal with weeds again. Next week, they're all back. They all just showed up again. How did that happen? Puritans, they would go ahead and call this besetting sins that we go ahead and deal with. How do we break the power of these besetting sins that ruin us, that hurt us, that, that lead us to not worship God in our lives? How do we break that power? How do we break that power, church? And I don't have anything special to say to you about how to break that power. I don't have a program or anything like that. Really, it's the Christian life. It's through prayer. It's through reading of the word, knowing who God is. It's through being a part of a Christian community. And when I say being a part of a Christian community, I don't just mean just showing up and just consuming or even just showing up and just serving but then leaving. No, I mean actually being known by other people within the community. That other people would know not only your strengths, but they would also know your weaknesses. They would know what you struggle with. I want you to see this, guys. James, uh, the apostle, also Jesus' half-brother, talking about how we can be healed, he says this. He's talking about, in the end of his book, he's talking about the power of prayer, how prayer can do great things for the people of God. And he says this, verses 15 and 16, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Praise be to God, what we're chatting about. Verse 16, though, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person with great powers at work is at its working. Here he's saying, church, he's saying this. He's saying, hey, when you have sins that you're hiding because you're ashamed of them and you don't want people to know about what you're dealing with and you're covering yourself up like Adam and Eve with fig leaves like they did in Genesis 3 when they sinned, when you actually go ahead and expose yourself to other people, and they don't go ahead and use your sins against you to hurt you, but they actually see you for who you are, and they say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to continue to love you and care for you. That's freeing. That's freeing. That's life-giving. That's healing, church. That is how we can be healed of our diseases. We can be healed of those sins that we continue to struggle with. So God, he forgives us of all of our iniquity. He heals us of all of our diseases. Furthermore, he redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, and he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Uh, those last three, they're meant to be lumped together, and they're meant to be lumped together to show you and I this, that God is a complete savior, that God who began a good work in you, as Paul says, is going to bring it to completion at the day that Jesus returns. So church, you need to hear this, all right? The grave does not have the last word on you as a follower of Jesus. The grave does not have the last word. The Lord Jesus has the last word on you and me as followers of Jesus. And this is the image that David gives us. He says, hey, he's going to redeem your life from the pit. That could be translated grave. So he's pulling you out of the grave. He's going to give you a crown. And then he's going to satisfy you with good so that your youth is renewed to you. What's he chatting about here? He's talking about what God will do to us, that he is a complete savior who takes us on even beyond the grave. So David, he makes tons of claims, guys. He makes tons of claims about who God is and what God's done for us. That God, he is a forgiver. He's a healer. He's a redeemer. 
God, he gives gifts to you and I. He satisfies us with good. And the question, I guess, that we should ask this morning is this, all right? How do we receive these gifts, right? I want these gifts. Don't you want these gifts? These are good gifts to have. How do we receive these gifts? We receive these gifts, Mercy Fellowship, because of Jesus. The only way that we can receive these gifts, the only way that this psalm makes any sense to you and to me is if our faith is placed in Jesus Christ. We see it like this, church. Because of Jesus, we are forgiven because of he took all of our iniquity for us on the cross. Because of Jesus, he heals all of our diseases. The, the prophet Isaiah says, by his wounds, we've been healed. Because of Jesus, church, your life is redeemed from the grave because when he pulled you out, he went in. Uh, do you see this morning, church, how, how God is a complete savior and how he has saved you from all things? It's amazing to see, actually. Let me get just technical for a second. With these three things right here, this is the, the whole Christian life, and it's broken up, as theologians would say, through justification. You've been pardoned. Sanctification. He's making you more like Christ. Glorification. One day you will be fully in God's presence, healed and restored 100%. These are the gifts that God has given to us. But we need to ask this question. All right, what evidence is there that God is actually this good? Right? And we could, anyone can make claims. A lot of religions make claims about who God is. What evidence is there that God is in fact this good to you and to me and that we can actually trust him that he's going to give us these gifts? This number two, as far as uh, this text goes. Let's look at verses six through 14. Part two, these benefits come from a faithful father. Let me take a look on the screen. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He, mo he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. Another way of saying that is rebuke. He will not always rebuke us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. David here, he lays out the history of the Exodus as an example to you and to I that we can look back to see what God has done so that we can actually see, hey, is there any evidence that God is in fact as good as he says he is? And this is something that Israel would do often, right? Uh, whether it was uh, some sort of uh, celebration they had, whether it was something that they were doing within their community, they would go ahead and they'd rehearse the Exodus narrative. They'd rehearse how God had sustained them led them, cared for them, protected them those 40 years in the wilderness before they had received their promised land. This was to show them that God was faithful to them despite their faithlessness, right? I mean, Mercy Fellowship, isn't it the same for you as well? You can look back at your life and you're like, oh yeah, God's been really good to me. I messed up here, but, but God spared me from the consequences of that. Or I look back and I say, okay, I, I can see where God was in this detail and how God provided for us here and how God led us to this certain situation and place. 
you look back at your life and you say, man, like God has really provided for us. God has, in fact, been faithful for us. And what Israel would do is this. They would look back and they would see how much God had cared for them and loved them and provided for them. And their conclusion was this. Oh, well, God, he's, God is like a father who shows compassion to a wayward people and children. God's a faithful father who loves us and cares for us, right? Not only is God a father, church, but we turn over then to the, to the story of Israel. And we look at the story of Israel, and Israel had been in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. They've been crying out to God, God, would you deliver us? God delivers Israel, and after he delivers them, they get into the wilderness, and they begin to complain. They begin to go ahead and say, oh man, if only we were back in Egypt. At least we had food, at least we had water. We look at that and we think, like, how stupid could you be? How does that happen? You and me, church, have the privilege of having a 30,000-foot view of everything going on in Israel's story. And so we could see everything, and we look at it, and we say, man, God, how could, how could Israel do this? Well, we have to be careful, though, because Israel's story is, is our story. Israel's problems are our problem, right? God, he has healed us of all of our diseases. He will one day fully. He has forgiven us of our sins, he has given us these great gifts of restoring our youth to us and redeeming our lives. And what do we do? We complain. We complain. We're much like Israel in this way. So how does God react to our complaining and our groaning when he provides for us in our lives? You parents that are here this morning, how do you uh, react to your, uh, to your children when they groan and complain and all you do is provide for them? Here's what God says. We already read it, but we'll read it again. Verses 8 through 12. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, rebuke us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. God reacts, Mercy Fellowship, to our complaining and our groaning with grace upon grace upon grace upon grace towards you and to me. He's a loving father. I recognize this. Some of you might come in today with poor experiences from your earthly father, and the result is this. If you had a poor experience with your earthly father, you're going to project that onto your heavenly father. If your earthly father wasn't around, then God the Father is going to seem like he's absent. If your earthly father was abusive, then God the Father is going to seem like he's abusive. Uh, this is one of the sad realities of this world, that God has intended that fathers would imitate God the Father in their family and point them to God the Father, and when they don't, there's dire consequences that take place throughout the family. God, he is a father. How, what would my challenge be to you? My challenge to you would be this. That you, got, you guys would go ahead, if you've had a poor experience with your earthly father, and you would take your eyes off of your earthly father, and you'd look at God the Father, and when you look at him, you would see how much he's loved you, provided for you, cared for you, he delights over you. It says in the Old Testament that he actually sings over his people, which is just adoration and love for his people. 
God's a father who loves you, church. I experienced this actually this last week. About a month ago, I got laid off from my job. And it's the worst time for it as well because uh, Ruth's pregnant. Baby's going to be here in about two months. So it's like, all right, bills are getting kind of tight. And I've got work coming in, so things are okay. But, and on top of that with inflation, just things just don't feel good right now. Like, man, I'd, I'd, I'd like some more income coming in. I'd like some more jobs coming in. And so we're sitting down. We're sitting down at dinner. It's around 7 o'clock, 7.15. And as we pray before dinner, I just prayed, hey, God, I pray that you provide work for me. Right? I could use some work. I pray that you provide more work for me so I could have some more income coming in. I say amen, and we're serving up. I don't even get to serve up my plate, but my phone rings. And it's an old client that I used to work for, and he's asking me to remodel his bathroom. And I'll be doing that in a couple weeks. It's like I had a need. I brought it to God the Father. God, I need this. And God answered right away. And the food was cold because I had this long phone call with a guy. God is a father, church, is what I'm trying to get to you, that God actually knows you, he loves you, he cares for you, and he desires to provide for you. So for you earthly fathers, here's my challenge to you. Are you going to imitate your heavenly father, or are you going to imitate your earthly father? Right? If you had an earthly father, Mercy Fellowship, and he loved God, and that he did all that he could to represent God the Father to you, Praise be to God. That's a great family legacy. Continue on in that way. But for those of you that didn't, though, are you going to break the chains of generational sins and problems and start a new one by linking yourself to God the Father as a new family line? Here's my challenge to you, fathers. Here's your aim. Can you imitate our Father in heaven? Are you slow to anger when your kids mess up? Are you bounding in steadfast love towards your children? Are you a protector? As God led Israel to the promised land, are you a leader and teacher? Can you teach your children to know and love Jesus and lead them to the true promised land, which is Jesus Christ? Are you compassionate towards your children as your Father in heaven is compassionate towards you? Uh, prepping for this week, looking at commentaries, one of the commentaries I use is an old Puritan named Matthew uh, Henry. And I got his quote up here. On this section, this is what he says. How unlike God are those who take every occasion to scold and they never know when to cease. Some of you had fathers like that. They always scolded you. They always told you you weren't enough. They always told you you didn't amount to anything. They never told you that you did a good job or well done. They were never proud and never said, I love you. They just scolded you. What would become of us, he says, if God should deal with us like that? The scripture says a great deal of the mercy of God, and we have all experienced it. The father pities his children that are weak in knowledge, and he teaches them. He pities them when they are difficult to deal with, and he bears with them. He pities them when they are sick, and he comforts them. He pities them when they are fallen, and he helps them to rise. He pities them when they are offended, and upon their submission, he forgives them. He pities them when wronged and makes them right. Thus the Lord pities those that trust in him. See why he pities us, church. He considers the frailty of our bodies and the folly of our souls. How little can we do, how little we can bear. In all of this, his compassion appears. You see what he's saying, right? We have deficits, we have failures, and God our Father, he meets them not by scolding us, not by rebuking us, 
not by mocking us or embarrassing us publicly. Rather, God is like a father who grabs us by the hand and he says, hey, I want to teach you. I want to help you. I want to care for you in your areas of weakness. These benefits, church, and I want to make sure this point's clear. That's why I'm really hammering down on it. These gifts that we're talking about, they're given to you, not by a joker who's going to give you these gifts and then twist on you in a second to hurt you. These gifts, they're not given to you from some sort of government agency that says, all right, here's these gifts. All right, but now you've got to pay me back. Now you've got to go ahead and, and earn those gifts that I just gave you. These gifts are handed to you by a loving father who desires your good. He's giving you a gift, a gift of which there's no retirement tag on. There's no going out of date tag on. So these gifts, they come from a faithful father. Part three and the last part of our text. These gifts come from an eternal kingdom. Psalm 103, verses 15 to 22, it says this. As for man, his days are like grass. The flourish is like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. David here, he's giving us a contrast. Man is finite. God is infinite. Man's kingdom is finite. God's kingdom is eternal. And from those kingdoms come gifts. The gifts that man gives you, they're temporary. The gifts that God gives you, they're eternal. This is what he's saying. I mean, Jesus, he says the same thing in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. He says, hey, where's your treasure at? Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be. So therefore, don't go ahead and store up treasures here on earth where moth and rust are going to get them because they're temporary. Rather, store up your treasures, store up these gifts that God has given to you in his kingdom. God is wanting us, and David is wanting us in this text, to consider that our lives are not eternal. They're finite here on earth. I want you to sit in this for a second, church. I want you to sit in this reality for a second, that your life is fleeting. Your life's fleeting. It is not uncommon for people to die unexpectedly. It is not uncommon for people to go to sleep and not wake up the next morning, right? Life is fleeting. Don't waste it on trivial things. Like next time you're mowing the grass and you come across a dandelion and you mow it over, think about your life. That's what he's saying. Your life is here one moment and then it's gone. Life is not eternal here on earth. It is temporary, Churches used to do a better job of making us aware in our cultures that our life was fleeting. If you go to the East Coast, over uh, my seminary was in Virginia, and I loved going over there, uh, but their churches were often surrounded by graveyards. And it was just a reminder to you of, hey, your life isn't eternal here on earth. It's temporary. In fact, I was watching some pastors a couple years ago, 
and they were talking about in Rome at a church, uh, in the graveyards, there was this sign. And the sign read, when you were walking into church, the sign read, where, we, where you are, I once was, and where we are, you will once one day be. One, I want to paint that sign and put it in my yard for Halloween. I think that's an awesome sign to have out. But two, what are they doing? They're making you aware to the reality that, hey, your life is fleeting. Your life is finite. Now, Mercy Fellowship, before you think of me as a masochist or anything like that, let me just go ahead and say this, okay? I think that, and I believe because of this text, it is a healthy thing for you to be aware of in the reality that your life is not forever. And it's a healthy thing because of this. It makes you aware to the reality of life. Life's a miracle. You have life today, church. Praise be to God for that. What a gift that is, that you have life. So not only is, is it good for that reason, but it's also good for this reason. It causes you then to go ahead and say, all right, well, I need to find something that's permanent. I need to find something that's concrete that I can rest my feet on. And it's causing you to look elsewhere other than yourself as the Savior to where you can go ahead and look at God's kingdom. So David, he ends this psalm with praising, and he goes ahead and he contemplates man's life, saying, my life is fleeting. Man's life is fleeting. But there's something else that is eternal, and that is the love of God for me that carries me beyond the grave. So I want to conclude with this, church. How do you feel about your life being finite? I ask these questions about how you feel. I'm trying to do it more often because uh, Ruth and I did an assessment about a month or two ago, and it's one of the things that came back to me, that my problem is I'm all head and I'm no heart, right? One of the characters from The Wizard of Oz. I don't know which one, but I don't have a heart. And so because of that, I need to start actually trying to call myself and beckon myself to feel things. How do you feel, church, about your life being finite? How do you feel about your life fleeting? How do you feel about the grave? This goes back to how we started. It's not enough, church, that you just have a theology of, okay, well, God's done these great things for me. That's awesome. That's great. God's given me all these gifts. No, you need to have application. You need to have a response. You need to have an emotion. What is the response to all these great things that God has done for us? Praising God. Worshiping Him. Why do we worship Him? Because of all he's done for us. Because of all that our God has done for us. Our Lord Jesus has forgiven us of our iniquities. He has healed us of all of our diseases. He's redeeming our life from the grave. So much so that the poet George Herbert said, death used to be an executioner, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ, death is now just a gardener. And that's meant to communicate that one day, church, with your faith in Jesus, you will rise to new life. You will be crowned with glory. You will be satisfied with good. And so our response to this church is this. With all we have, with all that we are, with all of our lives, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to praise his holy name. Let's pray this morning.